What do you do when you go to a celebration and it turns somber? You go to a party and something tragic or unexpected happens. If you were to plan a birthday celebration, I remember for all of our kids, we always gave them the opportunity, where do you want to go eat? What do you want to do for your birthday? And it was their pick, their choice. And they looked forward to it for a long time. One of my children knew every year where they were going for their birthday dinner. Uh, perhaps you look forward to a Thanksgiving meal. There are certain foods that the Easley family has to have for it to be Thanksgiving. There are certain foods for uh, Christmas, certain foods for New Year's. There are certain Father's Day or Mother's Day expectations. And you go into these celebrations, these events, these parties, looking forward to them. And rarely do we think about what if something goes south? What do you do if it doesn't turn out the way you intended I've officiated weddings where, fortunately, the bride or groom have never passed out, but some of the wedding partner have just dropped like a sheet. And uh, you get to the fun of you know, figuring out what do you do when you go to a celebration and something somber happens. If you'd open your Bible to Mark chapter 14, we continue in the Gospel of Mark and we enter what we call the week of unleavened bread or the Passover lamb supper. Uh, goes by several names. Um, this is a very simple message. It's a very sober message in some respects, but we're going to learn a lot of things, hopefully. But one thing is, what do you do when a celebration turns sober? In this section, we have three basic things. They're very simple, very easy to see in your text. It's the preparation for the Passover meal. It's the betrayal that happens at the Passover meal and then the establishment of the Lord's Supper. It's very simple, very pedantic in a way, but let's look at the text and keep some things in mind as we do this. This is a very short window of time. In six to eight hours, Jesus is going to be crucified. So he's gathering this meal. He's anticipated to have with his disciples for the very last time. And we read in Mark chapter 14, verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, um, wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Just as a reminder, the first day of unleavened bread, it's a week-long celebration. Passover was the first part of the celebration, and then seven days of unleavened bread followed as they commemorated all the events of the Exodus and reminding what God had done for them. Technically, it was on Nisan 14th or 15th. There's a little bit of debate because the way we think of time, we think of midnight is when it becomes the next day. For the Jew, the day was broken up in four sections of six hours, and twilight was when the next day began. So Sabbath, Shabbat, begins on Friday when the sun goes down, which is technically the next day. But we count it a little differently the way we think of our time. So on the day before Passover, all the animals would have been sacrificed in the afternoon. 
Uh, estimates are north of 30, 40. Some have incredible, huge numbers of a million people descending on Jerusalem. I don't think the city could accommodate that many, but I do think we're looking at 30 plus thousand people readily who would have been in the city at this time. That was natural inhabitants, and then you add those pilgrims who come, we're into tens of thousands of people at least who have come for the sacrifice. It's very likely that the, the person who sacrifices the animal is Jesus himself. The head of the household was typically the one that when the animals were picked and you went out into the fields where they were slaughtered, the, the head of the home would bleed the animal. Now, if you did this in antiquity, in the Exodus, of course, you did it in your home. But you could only do it where God established a place of worship where he established his name. So they would have thousands of these animals that would be waiting for them to be purchased or they were brought up. The priest would inspect them and then the, the head of the home would bleed that animal the blood would be caught in a basin and had to be dealt with in a special way. Those of you who are hunters, not to be too grotesque, but those of you who are hunters, um, you would know how to field dress an animal, and that was not too dissimilar to what they did with the lamb or the goat that then was brought in. The word unleavened technically means unfermented or without fermentation, and that's a symbolism. The idea is no sin. And so the whole preparation of the Passover was to be done without sin. Clean the house of all leaven. Make the flat bread so there's no representation of sin. It's done hastily. It's hurried because the angel of death is coming. And you're going to sacrifice the animal and put blood on the doorpost and lentil of the home. You're going to roast it with fire. You're going to eat it in haste, bitter herbs and other things. And you're going to gird up your loins and leave. They were remembering, they were commemorating this, not only with the big meal, but then a seven days of unleavened bread celebration to remind themselves of what God had done for Israel to redeem her out of slavery and consecrate her for worship. Uh, think of this also as an exciting holiday. Think of it as a barbecue. I don't know how many of you, maybe some of you are vegans and you don't like to eat meat. That's fine. That's, that's your decision. I, there's nothing I love more than smoking meats or grilling meats. It's the best smell in the universe to me is a steak or fish or something on the grill. And you think of all these animals being roasted with fire. It was a celebration. It was a barbecue. It was meant to be a celebration time to remember what God had done for them. And that was the anticipation of going up to Jerusalem to enjoy the Feast of Unleavened Bread. From Luke chapter 22, we know that Jesus sent Peter and John to go find this location. And there's some debate about was it prearranged or was it supernatural? Christ says you're going to meet a man carrying a water pitcher and you're going to follow him. That's kind of cryptic. It's one thing to say, I've got a house and you're going to already talk to the owner and he's made the room ready. But when you go, you're going to bump into a guy that's got a pitcher of water on his shoulder. And that does raise a couple of interesting comments because, not to be unkind, but men didn't carry water in that day. So it was an unusual sight to see a guy carrying a pitcher of water. And nonetheless, Jesus says that's the cryptic remark. Mark sees this, I would argue, as Jesus' supernatural ability. Even if he pre-planned the location, the fact that the guy was going to have a pitcher of water, who could have known that but God? Joseph Alexander takes it further. It can only be regarded as a prophetic sign that like Saul received from Samuel, and this would imply here, not a previous agreement, but a supernatural foresight of control of human actions. There's also a striking parallel for you Bible students. If you go back and look at the triumphal entry in Mark chapter 11, the first seven verses, the parallels of the verbs 
are extraordinary. Because what happens when he's coming in for the triumphal entry, there just happens to be an animal that's never been ridden on, ready for him there. And when he comes in for Passover to die, just happens to be a guy carrying a pitcher of water to take him to the location. And those two segments, the triumphal entry and this Last Supper discourse, really are parallel in rich theology and texture. We're coming in for a celebration, now we're getting ready for a death meal. Well, the room is large, it's unfurnished, it's furnished. The word furnished in Greek means spread out. And we use that word, we go to someone's home and we go, man, there was a spread there. There was food everywhere. Well, that probably has a little bit of latency in the way we talk about things. But for the ancient Jew, a spread also was a lounging. They didn't sit at tables with chairs. They were at a lower table, reclining, kind of leaning on pillows, leaning on their side, one way or the other, reclining, not the way da Vinci painted it, but more prone on the ground or close to the ground. The arresting comparison of this preparation is that it's already there ready for you, but you have to go make further preparations. So undoubtedly, they've slayed the animal outside near the complex proper. The priest has sanctioned the animal before it was bled. The blood was disposed of properly. They've roasted the meats. More than likely, they're then bringing the cooked meat and then the other foodstuffs necessary for the Passover meal together. The betrayal is then verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. So we have some time stamp. We can't know precisely sure but if you're, if you're sacrificing thousands of animals, you've got to orchestrate this. And many believe this happened the actual the day before. Let's call it Wednesday before the Thursday evening meal, which also would make some sense. As they were reclining, there's your word, at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and say to him one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the twelve. One who dips with me in the bowl, for the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. All four Gospels record the betrayal at the Passover supper. The evening, again, is this important time stamp. The sun has gone down now, so let's just call it 6 p.m. just for our own brain to think, okay, it's definitely twilight now. Um, this meal is going to last a couple of hours if it's a very short meal. It could go to 11.30, 12 at night, and then he's going to be arrested and crucified very quickly. So this is moving at a very quick pace that we don't get the benefit of going through this the way we are. And for the brevity and pace of Mark's gospel, it's interesting how he ca captures some very mundane things about this meal. They're very common observations, but they're very important to us as Bible readers uh, 2,000 plus years later. And he's keeping the Mosaic law because Passover, the meal had to occur at night, back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 8. And during the meal, Jesus issues this very solemn formula, truly I say to you. We've talked about that many times. Truly I say to you. It's a red flag in your Bible. Pay attention when he says this. One of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. That phrase is unique to Mark. They all talk about the betrayal, but no one except Mark says, one of you eating with me. It's a more personalized aspect. It's a chilling comment. Now, I don't want to use too much sanctified imagination, but if this was a celebration meal, which I believe it is by every account we have, and these are his 12 closest friends, by all accounts what we know, his hand-picked disciples. When he says this, we've got, a, we've got a lull over the conversation. 
This celebration has turned very quiet, very somber, very quickly. One of you is going to betray me. It's no longer the happy celebration they were looking to, remembering God's great uh, deliverance and redemption for Israel out of slavery and bringing them into their own land. Um, We'd say crickets today, or awkward silence. Years ago, they used to talk about Lincoln's ghost. When you'd be in a room or a, a hubbub or a conversation, all of a sudden someone would say something, something would happen, everything went real quiet and chilled, Lincoln's ghost came in the room. So we could see a little bit of that, I would argue, going on. These are his closest friends on earth, and he says, one of you is a betrayer. The guilty one, did he glance away? Did he stare at his food? Did he have a a gassed face like the other ones? Not me. Did he feign a lie? What did he do? It probably is linked to Psalm 41.9. And some of you who know your Bible history may remember the story of Ahipothel. Ahipothel was David's war counselor. Ahipothel had a long relationship with David in helping him fight and win his battles but there was some unfinished business in Ahipophel's family that David never dealt with, and it was the rape of one of the daughters, the daughter named Tamar. And Ahipophel then conspires with Absalom to destroy David's kingdom. In Psalm 41.9 we read, Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And that reference, many believe, that's a prophetic reference to one of my close friends. You were on the inside. You helped me. You were with me all this time, and you betrayed me. The counselor who betrays the king, and now the disciple who betrays the master. John Grasmick writes, to eat with the person and then betray him was the height of treachery. Verse 19, they began to be grieved and say to him, one by one, again, Mark's little detail, surely not I, not me, no way, not me. You think it's me, Lord? Each one of them, but the guilty one, of course, he says the same, but how did he feel? We can imagine the innocent disciples were devastated by Christ's words. This has ruined the whole evening. Couldn't be me, not me. You think I'd betray you? Verse 20, Jesus is clear, one of the twelve, who is dipping the same bowl. Um, Perhaps if you go to Mediterranean restaurants or Italian restaurants, sometimes they bring out a plate and they pour olive oil on it and then maybe put cracked pepper or this, that, or what, balsamic, whatever, and you dip your bread in it. That's pretty Mediterranean, pretty common. There was a bowl of oil, of spices, of herbs, and you would dip your bread in it. They didn't use utensils. Bread was the utensil. And you would dip in and we'd share a bowl. And it's an intimacy of you're eating with me. We're eating out of the same food, the same bowl. And one of you is going to betray me. For the Son of Man is to go, namely to die, which fulfills Scripture. And there are many you could point to. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 would be the easiest. Yet woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. I'm going to die. It's part of God's plan for me. That's going to happen. But nevertheless, woe to you are the instrument of that betrayal. The one who betrays sins against him. He picks up, he earns the title son of perdition. Remember back in Mark chapter 14, verse 10, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this, and they promised to give him money. 
and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. In the 23 or so times Judas' name is properly mentioned, or a pronoun with his name, Judas he, every single one of those 23 sometimes in your English Bible, the word betray or betrayed or betrayal or intending or becoming a traitor or the traitor is used within a couple of words or the same phrase every single time. Another, likewise, our Lord, one, one writer says, woe regards to Judas is both the wrath and pity of our Lord. He wasn't just angry and furious with them. He, he feels pity on the man. He's become a traitor. Another commentator, our Lord sees him to, seems to forget his own woes and pities this man. Now, let's think a little bit about this betrayer. Just I want to give you two other verses that come out of the Gospel of John. John, again, is, we, don't, we call, he's not the synoptic. John's Gospel is different. But some of the language in John is engendering and helps us understand some of the emotion behind this betrayal. In John 6, chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus speaking, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The, the writers of the gospel go over the top to remind us one, of the, one he chose, one of the twelve. He's going to betray him every time his name is mentioned. John 17, 12, in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus says, while I, he's talking to God, that he's praying to the Father in the hearing of the eleven. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them perished except the son of perdition, so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Son of the perdition is an idiom in Hebrew, which means one who's destined to perish. And he is the one who he becomes that imperature. He's the son of perdition. He's going to perish because of what he's done. You step back on the Gospel of Mark a little bit, it's striking that wherever the Gospel is preached, that the woman who broke the alabaster vial of perfume is forever remembered because of her lavish gesture. And wherever the name Judas Iscariot is mentioned, he is forever remembered as the betrayer. So you have this juxtaposition. What are you remembered for? Here's a woman with a lavish, generous gesture with this alabaster nard, this alabaster perfume that she broke and poured on Jesus over against the eternally remembered son of perdition. I think one lesson, it's not a pleasant lesson, but one lesson that probably does all of us as Christians good to hear from time to time. You can be really close to Jesus. You can be kind to Jesus. You're not rejecting him merely. You're betraying him. He was born to die that we might live. And to reject that offer is not merely to our own peril. It's to betray the reason he came. It's the height of treachery. I came to save you and you spit in my face. I came to save you. Not only do you reject me, but you say cruel, harmful things about me. We think of those who attack Christ in the media and print, those who hate Christians. Some of it may be deserved, but nevertheless, they hate Christ. It's not just rejection. It's betrayal. It's uncomfortable to think about. We came for a celebration, and it's become very somber. And Jesus continues by establishing this supper 
with a further meaning. Verse 22, while they were still eating. You've got to envision this being a slow process now, a somber process, a quiet process. He took bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is, the, is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The simple phrase, while they were eating, is another one of Mark's obvious little comments he gives us that gives us insight into the story. It's a present active participle, meaning during the meal. So he's made this announcement, one of you is going to betray me, not I, surely not me, not me, not me. And he's just keeping on eating the meal, and then he goes into the explanation of the meal. The explanation of the meaning of Passover was an important part of this ritual called the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They would recite from memory the whole story of Exodus chapter 12. And Jesus being the God-man rabbi, uh, I don't think he missed the detail in explaining the Last Supper from the Passover miracle that Moses uh, got the people out of Egypt from God's hand. Israel is going to be redeemed from slavery, from slavery to sin. Egypt is the metaphor of being ensconced in idolatry and immorality and all these other pagan things. And he's going to redeem them from that and then take them into the wilderness to consecrate them from all that idolatry. He's going to strip everything off of them except for manna, water, and the cloud. And that will be their, we might say, consecration so they then can worship him. And so Jesus will tell this entire story. The verbs he used all tie back to the Passover, the original Passover, in, in all kinds of ways. He took, after blessing, in Greek it's eulogeo, eulogy. We talk about good words. He gave a blessing, a eulogy. He broke. Interestingly, the word is only used of breaking and distributing bread. No other way. He gave. He took. And when you take something, the implication, when the disciples take it, it means they're going to eat it. And then he took the cup and gave thanks. And that's the word we've talked about many times, eucharisteo, eucharisteo, to give thanks for something. The bread and the cup are not strictly the item of the cup itself, but it's what's in the cup. The bread is emblematic of the lamb, the, of the, the hasten without any sin. We have the roasted lamb that's been, it's, it's the Christ. We have the bread that Jesus is going to commemorate his body, and the cup is going to commemorate the blood that is shed. There are three primary traditions. Some of us go back to Catholic, Lutheran, and we might call Protestant backgrounds. Catholics, of course, see a, a, a what's called a transubstantiation, that the elements, although they don't change in appearance, have literally changed in form and function, and they become the literal body and blood of Jesus. Um, they call it the real presence. Lutherans have a word called consubstantiation. Remember, Luther is a reaction to Catholicism. Luther was a Catholic priest, but he left the Catholic Church over a bunch of issues that he couldn't reconcile. And what he did is he redefined the terms and he went from transubstantiation to consubstantiation, meaning that the presence of Christ is in, within, and even under the elements. It's a strain to defend his point of view, but he was moving away from the literal body and blood of Jesus. And then it will be Calvinism and Protestants who will later come along and they will say, that's not right either. The emphasis is not what happens with the emblem. The emphasis is what Jesus commanded us to do. 
to remember him, to remember what he did in that covenant memorial meal. And so we call them emblems or symbolic gestures to remember what he's done for us. Um, as we continue the passage, we'll see that when he goes out, he's going to sing a hymn in verse 26. And what I want us to do is we will uh, commemorate the Lord's table together. I'm going to ask the, the band if they will come back out and, and regather and I'm going to go ahead and ask our men and women to distribute the elements. I want you to hold the elements while they distribute them. So as our band reassembles. As you hold the element, keep in mind a few things. This is six, maybe eight hours before he's crucified. The time is very short. He had arranged the meal. He planned it well beforehand. One of his closest friends has betrayed him. His concern for his disciples is paramount. To think he's explaining to his friends what's about to happen. Judas, of course, will leave very quickly. The concern for following the law and the celebration of the Passover is, is paramount in his mind as well. He's going to do it by the book. It's going to be the last time he's ever going to do it until the kingdom of God, which is another cryptic phrase from our Lord. The fully God, fully man awaits in a few hours of betrayal, he went in for a celebration and became very somber. And I suspect when those elements were passed, we would call them elements in the cup. It was a pretty quiet table with those 12. I don't want to make you sad or discouraged, but I do want you to be somber and kind of put yourself in that scenario when you went to have a great celebration and a feast for your birthday party, your Christmas, your Thanksgiving, your anniversary. It was going to be the the greatest meal of your life that year, and all of a sudden it turns very, very somber. I won't betray you. I won't do it. What must it have been like for him? And it's fascinating to me that in this somber situation, Jesus makes a choice to sing a hymn. These are called the Hallel songs, Psalm 113 to 118, give or take. We're not sure which one they sang. Some are pretty uh, convinced it's one or the other. But I think it's significant that sometimes when a celebration turns somber, our response is nevertheless to celebrate. Without the sobriety of Christ's death, there is no celebration. Without what he is about to do, there is no ultimate solution to the ultimate problem. And you hold in your hand a commemorative piece of his broken body in your place, on your behalf instead of you, a commemorative sip of what reminds us of the blood. The author of Hebrews reminds us, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness of sin. So the broken body and the shed blood are the two elements to remind you let me lead you in a prayer to take the bread and then the cup and then we will sing a hymn a song and then we will go out Father we do thank you for your word we thank you for our Jesus the fully God man who went into a celebration and it became very sober as his closest friends looked around and wondered who was the betrayer they were reminded of the cost of their redemption back in Egypt, could they have connected the dots to what Jesus meant? Do we? We hold a piece of bread 
to remind us that we deserve hell. We deserve death and separation. We deserve nothing. We can never be good enough to get to you. But this broken piece of bread reminds us you died to make a way. Celebration turns somber and it becomes our salvation. So we remember and we thank you and we take and eat. Take and eat this bread. In the same way after supper he took the cup and when he had given thanks he gave them the cup and said as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I don't think they understood it right then but they will in the future. Would you say with me I am proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. I am proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink.